podcast host Tim Minichi. Before we start this episode, I want to let you know about 90s Night at the Goat at Hayden Run this Saturday, December 3rd from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. If you're in the Columbus, Ohio area, bust out your flannel shirts and hammer pants and stop by the Goat at 5730 Silver Fall Street in Dublin, where I'll be spinning the best 90s music all night long. For more information, visit digmeoutpodcast.com and lcgoat.com. Now on with the podcast. This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Rochambeau by the Grays. Just oozing with ideas and talent. They go from complete darkness to complete light, from complete sadness to complete joy without changing dynamics. Huge melodies, melody on top of melody, verses and choruses. Wow, you really mailed that one in. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I am your host, Tim Minichi. Joining me at the witching hour, Mr. Jason <laughs> Piak. I'm not even sure when the witching hour is. Exactly. I don't know. I just know it's we, we should know do- it's late. We should do more episodes at the witching hour, though. <laughs> Usually we're at we're, well, now that the time has changed, we used to do it at dusk, but now it's dark out. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that once you hit, once you're close to the 11 o'clock news, it becomes witching hour. Yeah. Makes the podcast so, more evil. Yes. And we're doing an evil album tonight. <laughs> <laughs> A band called the Greys. There's nothing more evil than gray. It's the e- most evil of colors. It's it's the evil combination of black and white. <laughs> Draws from both both worlds. <laughs> oh God! Can you tell we've been doing this for too long and had too many problems? Oh my God! I've had so yeah. many technical problems. We're delirious. Yeah, we're going to keep this one short, under three minutes, and we're out of here. So get ready for a fast episode. Uh, I mentioned the Grays. A fast episode of a really complicated, long album. Yeah, (laughs) this is going to be interesting. So I mentioned the Grays. That's who we are reviewing. They only have one album, and we're going to take a listen to it. But first, let's do the very brief history of the band. History of the Band. The Greys formed in 1993, uh, comprised of ex-Jellyfish member Jason Faulkner. And John Bryan was also for a brief time in Jellyfish, correct? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I've always associated him, him with their sound, but... I- I don't know if he was until Tuesday for a brief period of time, Hmm. but I'll have to, I'll have to double check the, um, the interweb regarding his participation, whether or not it existed with jellyfish. Uh, also buddy judge and Dan McCarroll on this particular album. All of them wrote songs. All of them played multiple instruments. And this album came out in February of 1994. It's called Rochambeau. Came out on Epic Records. 
produced by Jack Joseph Puig. There was nothing to follow it up. John Bryan, Jason Faulkner, and these other gentlemen went on to other successful careers. John Bryan, most notably, scoring uh, soundtracks for various artists, uh, such as or directors. Um, also worked with the likes of both Fiona Apple and Kanye West. So he's had an interesting post Grey's career. I think he's put out a couple solo albums too, independently. Uh, Jason Faulkner has been a recording artist throughout the decade, written songs for various people. And um, the other two, Buddy Judge and uh, Dan McCarroll, they've done stuff. <laughs> take take Tim's word for it. They've done stuff. Take, take my stuff. You can Google it. It's all Googleable. Um, wow, you really mailed that one in. So just to let you know what everybody was playing, Jason Faulkner was on vocals, guitar, bass, and keyboards. John Bryan was on vocals, guitars, keyboards, and bass. Now, why you put bass ahead of keyboards for one guy and keyboards ahead of bass for the other guy, I don't know. Maybe it's just the number of songs that they actually did that on. Uh, Buddy Judge was vocals and guitar, and Dan McCarroll played drums. They also had Lenny Castro on additional percussion, and Martin Tillman on the cello. So, The Grays. This is an interesting record, Jay. Mm. You picked it. I did? Was, yeah, you did. Way back. I had never heard of this record before. <laughs> uh, okay, I didn't know that. I was confused because I actually thought that this was a record that involved Matthew Sweet and the guys from the Jayhawks. But that's a completely different super group of the 90s you're thinking of golden smog no that not golden smog um oh god what's the name of the band that they were in uh oh uh, you're losing uh-oh. it man you're losing it uh-oh it was oh god what was the name of it um i don't remember but i will uh, i will get to that it's like the thorns or something like that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I think you're right. I, I know what I, I, See, I can draw that out. I can, I can wow. go into my my slowly deteriorating brain and and pull out such random facts like the thorns. You're like a, one of the Avengers. Yes. I'm. I'm a dementia man. <laughs> So I guess I got to go first then, since this was your pick. I guess so. I really like this record, and it's not hard to tell why. The people involved, John John Bryan's one of my favorite musicians. Yeah. Everything the guy does, I want to listen to it over and over again because it's so dense with melody, and it's constructed in interesting ways, and just so happened that uh, John Bryan's song "Here We Go" was uh, my wife and I's first dance at our wedding, so we have a uh, a pretty strong connection to the music of John Bryan. And I'm a fan of his soundtrack stuff. His production on the Fiona Apple Fiona Apple records are is amazing, mm-hmm. especially the second one, um, uh, the one with the super long title. But specifically on this record. I like the fact that it's not just all John Bryan and you get to hear Jason Faulkner, who I'm not as familiar with. I have a couple of his solo records, but I haven't delved into them as much as I should. Yeah. Uh, this is just 
a just oozing with ideas and talent and interesting takes on 70s power pop of like i don't want to say cheap trick because they don't ever get that sort of energetic but more like bad finger in yep, a certain yep. strange ways in the way that um, bad finger translated the beatles yes they're in the same ballpark if you've ever um heard the song no matter what uh that is bad finger and uh that is all you need to know about bad finger that that song encapsulates bad finger pretty perfectly i mean just huge melodies melody on top of melody verses and choruses um harmonies just absolutely gorgeous harmonies on that song and that's what i would say a lot of this record is faulkner and and brian definitely lean more on that 70s power pop um sugary power pop at times but definitely power pop sound whereas and it, it, you can hear it from song to song there's there's definitely like a buddy judge dan mccarroll sound that's different they tend to be a little more rhythmic oriented with their songs mm-hmm. whereas um jason faulkner tends to be I, I feel like they probably sat down with an acoustic guitar and just sang out just got got out whatever vocal melodies that were they were trying to write with and probably with piano too yeah uh they open up with very best years which it sort of sounds it's it's a very faulkner-esque song from what i've heard but then he gets that that riff that he does that vocal riff that matches the guitar line that da 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 da, and it's like whoa no they're operating on a whole other level there is there something you can do my love won't you help That's that song is very reminiscent of Jellyfish for me. It, it's probably the one song on here where you, you know, you can really kind of uh, pinpoint, you know, uh, the Jellyfish, uh, I, I guess, lineage for the band, particularly that part of the song where they match up the vocal and the guitar part. To me, that that really set off a thing in my head where it, it made me think of them. The thing that's real interesting is how effortlessly they can switch rhythms and go from major to minor yeah you know like a verse and a chorus yeah a lot of bands cannot pull that off they yeah. struggle with just using a minor for like the bridge you know you'll you'll play the whole song in like in c or g or something like that and you'll go to an a minor for the for the bridge yeah. And that, or an E minor or something like that, and then th- that's where you get your dark part of the song, and then you go back to like the you know the major chords for the rest of the song. But they, I mean, they even within um, just a, a, a measure, are able to twist their voicings for what chords that they're using to create just such interesting depth to to the songs. It, it's like a masterclass in terms of that. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous yeah. when you're listening to it. You're like. You know, 
they, yeah, they go from complete, they go from complete darkness to complete light, from complete sadness to complete joy, without changing dynamics, and without you know getting stereotypically heavy, quote unquote, or uh, you know releasing or uh, uh, introducing some new uh, dynamic aspect of the song. They just do it through chord changes, which is. Mm-hmm pretty amazing or they do it through the way that they you know maybe um approach a a harmony and a vocal you know just changing up how the part is done it's just like totally changes how uh the the overall feel of of the part which is pretty amazing the the thing that is so cool about this record is how they are able to basically hit every aspect of power pop Mm. Trek 10, Not Long for This World, is without a doubt the most rockin' song on on the album. Mm-hmm. And it sort of hits the almost that cheap trick kind of, you know, aggressive up-tempo sound. But then just a couple songs, two songs before it, you get, and that's a John Bryan song, you get on uh, track eight, Both Belong, you get this great acoustic guitar playing. And I'm yeah. not like somebody who wants to hear, you know, acoustic guitar picking all day, but they incorporate it perfectly And it's just within two tracks of, you know, you get what could be, you could do an entire album of just songs, like one of those two songs. Yeah. And it would be completely fine. But they are able to be, you know, so diverse in their approaches to, you know, power pop, essentially, that they can hit both ends of it. That's the really interesting part is that they got four guys writing songs and yet, this sounds like a, a coherent rep, um, album. It it really does, and um, I, I, although I will say that the the moments where they really, um, I think, kind of glue together and and do hit the middle ground, where you're not quite sure who's in the driver's seat, because I mean, you do have a lot of obviously creative vision here. You have at least two people who have, you know. You know, they've had their own solo careers. They've had, you know, they've done their own things. They've obviously have their own ideas of what they want to do. There are moments of intersection, I think, where you're not quite sure of, you know, who's in the driver's seat, and it actually becomes a legitimate band. That I think, for me, that's where it works the best. And they have, I, one critique I would have of this is that those moments. They seemed. Did you notice that this album has a lot of long intros? I did notice that. It, uh, track two has a long intro that kind of it makes this. It's the song's like four, five forty. Yeah, you could have easily cut a minute out of that song yeah. by giving the intro. And I really struggle with. There's several songs that do that, and I really struggle with. It's not that the intros are bad. There's actually moments of those intros where it does what what I'm talking about where it sounds like, you know, it sounds like a legitimate band kind of just 
just playing and sort of playing off each other and kind of, you know, introducing parts and kind of, you know, exchanging ideas. But then, you know, at some point it's like, okay, well, we got to get to the song that one of us wrote. So it's kind of like the band is like jamming a little bit for a minute or so on the intro. And then it's like, okay, well, here's the first chord of the song. Let's go to that. And then they go into the song and they sort of, you know, they play through the song like either Faulkner or, or uh, Brian wrote it or one of the other guys. Then they get to a bridge at some point that, again, turns into more of a band thing. And they get a little bit looser and you can kind of hear the personalities come through in those moments. And then they snap back to, okay, let's get back to the song again. And then, you know, there may be an outro where they where they loosen up again. But I noticed that formula as I was listening to the album with a little bit more critical ear now, that that push and pull was going on, uh, you know, between like, are we a bunch of songwriters who are playing on each other's songs or are we a legitimate band where, you know, it's equal parts, everybody pushing each other and, and introducing new ideas and, and being inspired by other people's ideas and stuff. Um, so from that aspect, I think there's there's definitely a ton of dynamic going on there, and I think that's why you end up with a lot of songs that, um, unf- I don't want to say unfortunately are six min- five or six minutes long because uh, there's so there's so much I guess to take in and and learn and enjoy for those six minutes. It's hard for me to say that you know I wish they were all three minutes long. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I get what you're saying. You kind of want to hear the space that is there as well as hear super, you know, tight playing and, and condensed songwriting. So yeah. it, it, it kind of goes both ways. It depends on what, what you're in the mood for at the time. One song I wanted to highlight just because I could not get over the sound was track four, Friend of Mine. Specifically, when I heard that song, I started questioning whether or not the lead singer from Blink of the Star guest vocaled on that song. Yeah. Because it sounds... And I know it's a it's a Jason Faulkner song, but he sounds so much like Jordan... I, I think it's called... I think his name is Zardinozzi or Zadarazzi or I don't even know how he pronounced the last name. Just the guy from Blink of the Star.
and, it, and they had albums out right around this time. I mean, Rochambeau came out, like I said, in, in 94. The first uh, Link of the Star album came out in 93. Yeah. So it's, you know, he, he could have easily been listening to Jason Faulkner and, and forming his sort of sound as far as a songwriter and not that, uh, you know, I think that he ripped him off or anything like that, but like, man, that sounded like I was, <laughs> I, I had to go check the, the liner notes. I'm like, did, did they have a guest vocalist on this? Cause yeah. especially from their first couple, the first couple of Blink of the Star albums are pretty uh, rough, I guess you'd say. Yeah. It's not until August Everywhere where they he sort of finds his sound. Wasn't Ken and, Ken Andrews involved in that? that that's album? where Ken Andrews was. Yeah, he yeah. was involved in August Everywhere, which came out on DreamWorks in '99. Uh, which right. is, you know, that's up for our review. Actually, we could we could do that record sometime. Because yeah. it's, I think that's probably not a successful record. But anyway, I was just I was yeah. just sort of blown away at how much that sounded like like him. Yeah, he's able to, uh, and I was. I was actually confused at times whether it was Faulkner singing or one of the other guys. I, obviously, John Bryan, you, you know what he's singing. He has a very distinctive voice, but um, there, there's definitely moments where you know it's Faulkner, and then there's other moments where it could be him with a different, sort of just using a different part of his voice, or it could be one of the other two guys in the band, and I wasn't 100% sure uh, who that was. And, and, and you sort of get hypnotized by all the harmonies, too, that, that happen, that it almost becomes... And then, and there's a lot of exchange of vocals, and you you almost get uh, you almost get lost in who's singing. You know, there's so much of that going on. Well, the cool part is that on the songs that Faulkner and and Brian didn't write, you get to kind of hear them then tinkering. Mm-hmm. Um, track five is it now yet? Which is one of the slower songs on the album. It's a Buddy Judge is singing that song, and there's all these like interesting keyboard stuff that's going on in that record or on, or on that song uh, i think it's a, a Rhodes is being played at one point and then i think that like signature weird keyboard that john bryan has is it called a harmonium uh the mellotron mellotron yeah that's on that song too i think yeah and if you i mean there's it's layered and it's buried and it's not like they're bringing these things up to the forefront you really have to Put on the headphones and listen to this because there's so many things that they're they're messing around with and i kind of like that they're able to like not worry about the vocals and the and the lyrics and stuff like that and they're able to just sit at keyboards and guitars and and noodle around and, and play with different sounds
one of the things I, I I noted on that song, along with several others, was um, how good the bass part was and the bass playing was on that song. Um, yeah. And, and to hear that they, that two people performed the bass on this album, um, is pretty amazing. I mean, there are, there are songs on this album where I swear to God, you know, as I was making notes. If you told me Paul McCartney played it, I would have totally believed you. I mean, they are so, <laughs> from a tone standpoint and from a playing standpoint, so dead on to to what Paul McCartney would do. Um, it, it's incredible. Um, you know, the the bass parts alone are, are just they're ridiculous. Like they, to, and to think that these guys both exchange like, oh, I'll do the bass on the song, you do the, you know, sort of like. You know, I didn't even know as somebody who had, you know, owned this album for a while, listened to it quite a bit. You know, it hadn't even occurred to me. I just always assumed one of the guys was the bass player and it sort of was more of a collaborative thing. It sounds like that, you know, they just whoever, you know, had the better part or whatever or took it on, did it. It's just amazing because to me, the the bass parts on this album are they're just amazing. They're just incredible. And they're they're pretty consistent. Like you don't get any sense of like there's a different person playing them, which is amazing. Trek 13, No One Can Hurt Me Now, has a particularly good bass line. I would describe it as slippery. Mm. Slippery That's bass. a John Bryan song, which makes sense. I mean, you know, Faulkner and, and Bryan probably, I wouldn't be surprised if those guys even picked up a bass to write a song and started, yeah. you know, from the bass end of it. Yeah. And they even dabble in, uh, I think, the one song that you pointed out, um, Tricks. Tricks six. No, I'm sorry, five. Is it you? Is it? Is it now yet? yet? It almost has a fretless sound, which <laughs> is usually a big no no for me, but it's right. not annoying. Like, I don't know if they're using a fretless for sure or not, or if they're just doing a lot of like. Um, sort of slides and bends that makes it sound fretless, but uh, you know, between the tone and the way they're playing it, it it does it in the best possible way. Uh, just usually something that's super annoying to me, and, and they're able to do it. it. It just adds another melody, um, another melody to the song that's uh, that works really well. I, I, I mean, we could go on just dumping effusive praise on this album, but I think it's pretty clear that we are both. I'm I'm curious as to when did you actually get this record? Did you get it when it came out back in the day? Because I knew you were a fan of Jellyfish. Yeah. You know, I don't... That's a really good question. I, I don't think I did. I definitely okay. didn't get it when it came out. I'm trying to remember uh, how much later it was. I want to say it was after I was more aware of John Bryan's stuff that I went back and got it. Um, just because I was... Uh, I think independently a fan of Faulkner and Jellyfish and then Brian. And then I think at some point heard that they had done a band together and then went back and got the album at that point. But I, I do want to be, I do want to be honest in that, you know, this album is a bit challenging, which seems really strange because it's so full of melody and harmony. It seems like it would be a, a pretty easy listen but I almost put it up there with the, f- the failure album that we, we reviewed mm-hmm. um, there's just a lot to take in it's, it's a long album 
individually the songs you know they're they're all decent length they're all you know three to five minute pushing six minute at time songs with long intros and you do get you know i find myself you know day you know sort of fading on the album here and there it's definitely something that um you need to you know invest some time in i think it's kind of thing where you know the more you pay attention the more you listen to it it just has so many layers to it that are just brilliant but it also can lose you it you know it's sort of you get lost in in it a little bit you sort of get lost in the forest a, a little bit and you know there's times where it it gets a little almost like loungy like Faulkner has a tendency to almost get like too soft rock on you like it yeah <laughs> at times I feel like I'm listening to a Chicago album <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know yeah, not, yeah th- there's um <laughs> there's a streak that runs through his playing and, and like you said his his vocal melodies and and vocal style that definitely harkens to um not Peter Cetera Chicago, uh, but that like Saturday in the Park yeah. uh, Chicago yeah. from the seventies, and it's not necessarily terrible if you're in the mood for it. Yeah, um, those those lighter moments can be sort of enjoyable, but he definitely teeters the line of almost schmaltzy. Yeah, pop. Yeah, um, totally. And those are the moments where it can you know, start to lose you or turn you off a little bit. The nice thing is that they shift and, you know, like we've mentioned earlier, I think it goes, you know, light to dark pretty quick. Um, for the most part, I think most of giant John Bryan stuff tends to have a, a more moody, dark tinge to it and a weird kind of, you know, if you're familiar with any of the soundtracks he's done, you know, punch, punch, Dark love or, um, or some of the others that he's done. You know, he's always got this kind of quirky chamber music, kind of dark with a little bit of whimsy to it kind of thing going on. And that's definitely on, you know, all the songs he does here and even the songs he didn't write. He sort of brings that element to it. And it it, it always maintains, I think, if you're familiar with how he produces and orchestrates music. I think for the most part, this album maintains that for the most part. I know he didn't produce it, but he obviously had a hand in how it was produced because, you know, it sounds like a John Bryan produced album. So he, I, I can't imagine he wouldn't, I don't, I can't imagine he just sat there and let some guy turn all the knobs and yeah. say that I'm handing it all over. So when, when Faulkner gets a little schmaltzy, he, he kind of can come in and, and turn it a little bit to get a little bit you know, more somber or dark or kind of give it some edge, which is nice. But, you know, another thing I, that, that I thought was really interesting about this album is that there's so many tones used on it, especially from a guitar standpoint and even a drum standpoint, you know, guitar wise, it's like within one song, you know, there'll be 12 guitar tones and they'll just all kind of just come in and out and, they're all crafted to play a particular part, you know. I, so, like, you know, most guitar players would kind of dial in a tone and they would probably say, okay, for these three songs, I'm going to use this tone. And for these three songs, maybe I'll, you know, change my guitars, but I'll use the same amp. And that's how they'll do the whole record, you know. They're, like, 
for this part, I want this guitar and this amp. I'm going to mic it this way, and I'm going to turn the tone knobs like this. I'm going to adjust the amp to sound like this. I'm going to adjust the miking of the amp to sound like this. And then they play the one part, you know, that may last 15 Mm -hmm. seconds. And then they'll, you know, introduce a new part that has a completely different setup, you know, and the whole album is like that. So in a way it's brilliant. In another way, it's kind of like, it kind of gets exhaustive because there's just so much going on and so much to kind of take in and, and, and listen to and, and appreciate you know, it's it's kind of overwhelming at times. It is a lot, and I think the failure comparison is is apt. I mean, there's so much going on that you kind of need to like sit down and put your headphones on and take it all in. And this is not background music to me. <laughs> no. Now, you said you didn't get this when it came out. Apparently, a lot of people didn't get this <laughs> when it came out because yeah. it, nobody really knows about this record. I, I feel like. Um, the people who do know about it love it, but the people who don't, um, which is the majority, uh, it probably had no chance when it came out. I don't know why Epic put this out. I mean, why Sony, you know, Epic being a part of Sony, would put out a power pop super group, you know, uh, advanced. This is like you said, this is an advanced course in in songwriting. <laughs> And in, production. In production in 1994, this had no business coming out. Well, you know, had this band... That's sad to say because, you know, had this band existed in the 70s, it would it would be perfect for that yes. time period. And you would make total sense of why a, a label of that era would get behind it. But yeah, I mean, in a way, you're, you're completely right that in the 90s, it, you know, it, it very much was, let's find the next, you know, alt-rock hit band... <laughs> and let's keep trying until we find that you know find the next one and throw the stuff against the wall and see see which one sticks uh they were definitely not that i, w- I would definitely say that um the, you know jellyfish had a lot of credibility i think there was a lot of in people that and business people and uh, label people that were enamored with them and and saw you know some potential and envision in some way trying to figure out how to make what they were doing successful so i know jason you know faulkner had several solo albums um probably as a result of that band you know i I would imagine the grace you know got a chance because of of that i know imperial drag was another band that you know got an opportunity because of that you know there was a lot of like periphery bands that kind of came out of that um that jellyfish ex- experiment to see, you know, is there somebody in this mix? Cause there were so many talented people involved with that. There's somebody in this mix that can kind of, you know, have a commercial breakthrough. Uh, I think that, you know, likely that was, you know, the, the gray story in terms of, uh, they were just one of those bands where it was like, well, let's see if maybe we combine, you know, if John Bryan is combined with them and let's see if they, we can, uh, you know, make it happen with this, this, this recipe. I wonder if they listened to Jellyfish and thought this could be the next Queen. Because I heard a lot of Queen, yeah, in in a lot of what both John Bryan, what John Bryan and, and Jason Faulkner do. Obviously not the Bohemian Rhapsody Queen, but you know their penchant for layering vocals and melodies and 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 
totally embracing pop and being ambitious. I mean, yes. you know, Queen was a very ambitious band, and, and these guys are ambitious, and Jellyfish was ambitious, and you know, the, super talented. You know, you, you got three, you know, you got four or five guys in all of those bands that were all individually, you know, ridiculously talented, and weren't afraid to try, you know, try new things, and so yeah, I mean, I think that that that's true. <laughs> I think we've seen a. A lot of uh, labels and eras fall into is trying to recapture Queen, which I, I don't think is ever gonna. It's just one of those things that's never gonna happen again, unfortunately. But uh, uh, it, does, it doesn't mean that the A&R guys aren't gonna try. Right. So, I guess that's pretty obviously two wildly enthusiastic thumbs up for the Grays Rochambeau. Uh, just real quickly. We've added a bunch of new ways that you can subscribe to the podcast on the website. RSS yeah. feed, Adam feed, uh, Google, Yahoo. And you can also just stream straight off the website. So just yeah. want to get that in. Thanks thanks to some feedback. We're sort of ignorant and we have our own ways of how we listen to podcasts. And I had no idea that Google had a service that would allow you to do that. So we <laughs> We've responded to the fans and and tried our best to make sure that uh, no matter how you choose to enjoy podcasts, that you can uh, you can subscribe. I also want to mention that we don't have that many episodes left uh, for the year. We basically have um, one, two, three, like four episodes, and then we're going to do our end of the year wrap up with our best of and. You know, sort of a preview for 2012, what's going to be coming up. And um, we're going to want you, the listener, to submit what your uh, favorite band was for the year. So it's sort of a favorite episode, but really it's what band did you listen to and think, wow, I'm, I found a new favorite band. Uh, I'm curious if people want to send in emails. You can even send us an MP3 you know, keep it like to 30 seconds. Probably we don't want to have like five minute long explanations of why Curb Dog is now your new favorite <laughs> band. Um, but like 30 seconds to a minute would probably be the maximum. Um, you can send those just to us and we'll play them during the end of the year show, which will come out the last week in December. And uh, to dig we'll me get... out at Gmail. Yeah. Dig me out podcast at gmail.com or just, you know, I'll put some I'll put some stuff in the Twitter feed and the, in the Facebook page for uh, for that as well, and uh, we can have um, we can have a big old kumbaya at the end of the year. See what people like. I'm not going to do what you didn't like because I have a very fragile psyche when it comes to stuff like that. So we don't want to upset that. I don't want my fe- my feelings to be hurt. No. So, especially somebody's like, you know that Uncle Tupelo album? That blue. <laughs> Boring. I guess that's it, Jay. I'm delirious at this point. I'm well past my bedtime because of all the technical problems. Me too. So, and you are three sheets. So, <laughs> we need to uh, we need to wrap this sucker up, put a bow on it, and uh, take her out to pasture. That's three different idioms I just used right there. Wow. This, yeah. That's it. All right, we're out of here. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Jay, for joining me once again. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
want to leave feedback? Join the conversation about this episode. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. Sweet Mamma Jamma.